Mackey here. You are one idiot providing some thoughts on things on a podcast. This past Christmas season, I asked for and received a box set of DVDs for future potential use. I've also got some others in line as well already. And with gift cards, I'm ordering even more, getting paranoid that I'll want to look at a series that is out of print on physical media and also doesn't stream anywhere sometime in the future. I will say that one of these has a good chance of following Rockford, although given the amount of Rockford I have left to go, I might push it into slot number two, despite its larger episode count. In any case, I need to get through the episodes of each show I have running in each slot before I can make a decision on what follows, so tonight I'm getting back into it watching Rockford Files Season 1, Episode 11, Caledonia, It's Worth a Fortune, which originally aired December 6th of 1974. The brief summary. In a prison hospital, Jerry Highland tells wife Jolene that Caledonia, California, is worth a fortune in a very early episode title drop. Two heavies are shown to be following her. Jolene hires Rockford to go out to Caledonia with her to search for his buried loot. The sheriff there is none too happy that they're poking around his town. Later, it turns out Jerry Highland had provided the city location to Jolene, but specific directions to the loot he gave to Leonard Blair, his old partner in crime. Jolene and Leonard had had an affair before the crime that put the two men away. Len got out two years earlier than Jerry, and what follows are a long series of double crosses and backtracks as each interested party, Jolene, Len, and the other heavies, con and fight it out to get to the purported fortune. In the end, it turns out Jerry pulled the con from the beginning. The loot in question was a metal box with a note that made it clear that Jerry knew the two had had an affair behind his back and put them through all the back and forth to make them hate each other. The sheriff is not particularly amused by the whole thing, having searched for the loot himself for years, and arrests them all to close out the episode. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. It's Doc Jones. What'd you do to the hand, son? Three fractured knuckles. You hit somebody? Now, I don't normally comment on the answering machine gag, but I do have to interject and point out the rare inter-episode continuity in that Rockford did pop that other P.I. in the jaw last episode, hurting his hand. So now, who is? When I was watching the episode, there was that scene where Rockford used a masterful social engineering hack to get all the information from the motel manager. The motel manager seemed very familiar to me, but I couldn't figure out why. Then I went to IMDb and found out that the actor, Robert Ellenstein, was in a single episode of Moonlighting, and then I didn't need to check to know that he was the old man in the pilot movie. While I was looking at IMDb listings for the episode, I noted the uncredited store cashier was played by Tina Maynard, a Mexican-American actress who mostly played maids and clerks but still put together a working career on screen in a time when many Hispanic roles were still regularly played by non-Hispanic performers. I was also amused by the uncredited Hank Robinson playing a golfer. Hank played in many cowboy pictures early in his career, but was much more frequently cast as a baseball umpire later in life. I counted 18 different films and television shows in which he played an umpire. So this week, I'm going to look at guest 
So this week, I'm going to look at guest actress Shelley Fabre and the role of Jolene Highland. Shelley Fabre was a teen star in the late 50s through early 60s, acting in a cluster of beach movies, but most famous playing Mary, the daughter of Donna Reed's Donna Stone in The Donna Reed Show. She also charted a number one Billboard Hot 100 single with Johnny Angel, which premiered in an episode of the show. By the time of her Rockford Files guest appearance, she was doing her best to take roles against type, and it seems the role of a conman prisoner fits that goal. Later in her career, she landed another starring role in a long-running sitcom as Christine Armstrong, wife to Craig T. Nelson's Coach Hayden Fox in the series Coach. She married Mike Farrell of MASH fame, but has wound down her acting career following a serious illness. Totally 70s. Uh, This one's actually totally 70s and earlier. I'm having a hard time pinpointing when and if there was a total die-out of corner stars where most, if not all, the products are behind the counter, as appears to be depicted in this episode. I recall very dimly a corner market in my neighborhood in St. Paul, Minnesota in the late 1970s that may have been of that style, or it might just be my kid impression of how that store worked. I do know that it closed sometime before 1980 to be replaced by a gallery. There's probably an efficient Google search term that might bring me an answer to this, but I did not find one. Most of the results that I got told me that Piggly Wiggly pioneered the self-service market that began to replace that old style way back in 1916. And of course, from the tight shot on the counter, there's every possibility that this is a retail-dressed corner of a studio set and not an existing market at all. Artifactoids So, on the counters in the store in this episode, there are a number of name-brand products on display, presumably with nary a product placement dollar spent to be there. I noticed Fleischmann yeast and some manner of Nora soup or bouillon, as well as a number of -of out-of-focus products on the back counter. I picked something recognizable but barely visible near the register, Astropops. I don't have any strong memory associated with Astropops. They were around when I was a kid. I'm sure I'd eaten one or two, but I don't have a strong opinion nor memory of the flavor. They did always have a distinctive look, which is probably why I noticed them here. The Astropop website is broken with a WordPress critical error message that's all too familiar to me. Wikipedia was able to point me to the Wayback version. The site claims that two rocket scientists working with this U.S. space program invented the Astropop, which is the claim repeated on Wikipedia as well. But I didn't buy it, especially considering these rocket scientists were not named and the quotes you keep hearing me make are actually in the website copy. The oldtimecandy.com website does not mention the space race in relation to Nell and Tony D, Californian candy makers, other than pointing out that 1963 is the middle of the space race and the perfect time to develop a rocket-shaped candy. The official site claims the rocket scientists invented the machinery in El Segundo after quitting their jobs in the space industry. The site says the hot candy was poured into the plastic wrapper and the plastic wrapper acted as the mold for the pops. Both sites state the product was eventually acquired by the Spangler Company, and that around the year 2000, Spangler decided to put the sticks in at the narrow tip and not at the base. Old Time Candy ends their story there, but the official site goes on to say that the Astropop was discontinued by Spangler in 2004. 
The brand was revived when purchased in 2010 to be manufactured by the also recently revived Leaf Candy Company. Apparently, all the original equipment had been sold for scrap by Spangler, and Leaf had to reinvent the process. And, as usual, you're getting way more than you ever wanted to know here in the Artifactoid segment. So what worked? I thought that Shelley Fabre and Richard Shaw made good adversaries and played off Rockford in positive and negative ways, respectively, that was enjoyable. I definitely liked Ramon Bieri as the sheriff, running the P.I. out of town and also with an eye to uncover the treasure himself. What didn't work? I cannot deny that it is a little repetitive, with the mild distinction that Jerry apparently came to these stamps legitimately after he returned the actual heist loot prior to sentencing. Also, the two extra heavies didn't add too much. The interplay with Jolene and Len was adequate. The two extra guys were pretty much just there to give the impression that everyone wants this loot. Also, I didn't buy that Jolene was ever involved with either Jerry or Len, as they both seemed like old men compared to her. So the next episode is Season 1, Episode 12, apparently Part 1 of a two-part episode known collectively as Profit and Loss. Part 1 is called Profit. One assumes Rockford will this time be working for an executive or possibly for a corporation. Happy hunting! You've been listening to the One Idget's Thoughts On podcast produced by Paul Mackey in association with Nimlas Studios. Any short clips of audio from shows is included under fair use for commentary purposes and copyright for that content remains with its original copyright holders. The theme song is Too Good by Jack Mangan and is used by his generous permission. One Idget's Thoughts is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. You can find more episodes of this podcast and many other fine podcasts at nimlast.org. You can contact me by emailing idgetcastpodcast at gmail.com or commenting on episodes at nimlast.org. So, one or two moving violations, unlawful entry, trespassing, back-talking an officer of the law, and illegal parking. It's a good thing this is still the era of the big red reset button between episodes, or Jim would need to get a lawyer.